one of the joys of renting is sometimes you walk in and nothing works. Can you guys give it up for our sound guys this morning? We've had some issues this morning. We're trying to tr troubleshoot. for the simple mercies of a sound system that works enough for a room small enough that we don't have to have it. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can bring it with us in our phones and in book and in our heart, that we don't have to... Um, that we don't have to come uh, to find it um, in some central place in town or some town nearby, but we get it, and yet we get to come together to seek you together through it. Father, as we, as we think ahead to Memorial Day tomorrow and we think of those who have served um, our country, Father, we thank you that we are part of a much larger kingdom, a more important kingdom, an eternal kingdom that those, that those who have gone before us have embraced suffering and died that we might be here. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the lessons that your spirit and your son have for us this morning, knowing that at some level they can't be taught, they must be caught. So God, may your word catch in our heart. May it be a seed that is planted deep, that grows and blooms. May it be a fire within us that we would be weary of keeping it in. God, mold us and transform us that we would be like you, that the world would know that you are God because of us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Does a people's history, does a people's history of injustice and wickedness excuse us, the church, from preaching the gospel and making disciples among them. Do we have the right to be angry when God is gracious and merciful to the unjust and to the wicked? We concluded last week with our series in Ezra, and we've been looking at the experience of Israel. Oh, there's Bibles coming down. If you need a Bible, <laughs> raise a hand. If you don't have a Bible of your own, um, by all means, take this as a gift, a gift from us. Read it. Mark it up. Um, but we've been looking at Ezra, and we've been looking at the experience of the people of Israel returning from exile. God had judged them. God had disciplined them. He had sent them out of the land of Israel for 70-some years. And in Ezra, they're coming back. And so we've been seeking together to learn those lessons of faith and of mercy that they learned or sought to learn. Because we, they have something to teach us. But today, this morning, we're going we're gonna to jump back um, to a series that we started, a short series that we started earlier this month in Jonah. 
And, we're, and the connection is, well, Jonah is also coming out of exile. We're going to be in Jonah 3. Jonah's also been in exile. His exile, entirely self-imposed. He fled from God and wound up in exile, and now he's returned. Um, and so we're going to try to pick up there and see, did he, did he learn his lesson? So from our study of chapters 1 and 2, if you were here uh, with the first Sunday of the month, something like that, um, we learned that Jonah was something of a hardline nationalist, at least it seems, orthodox in his theology, but apparently willing to look the other way at the failings of his countrymen and of their king, Jeroboam II. So when God called him to proclaim a warning, really the gospel, to the Assyrians, that enemy, powerful nation north of Israel, um, he rebelled and wound up after essentially a suicide attempt, miraculously alive in the belly of a fish for three days. And in this fish, he prays a psalm. And like weirdly, it's a fairly self-congratulatory one. And after praying, after the three days, God vomits him out, and there he is on the shores of Israel once again, back in his homeland. And God has reset the scene for us here in Jonah chapter 3 to graciously give Jonah a second chance, a second chance to respond to God's, God's command in faith and in faithfulness. So if you will, turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. If you have one of the blue Bibles, um, I believe it's uh, page 775. We're going to work through Jonah chapter 3 and Jonah chapter 4 this morning. So Jonah 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call, call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and, and published through Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is, uh, that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So we see here in chapter 3, that Jonah, having received God's command a second time, um, goes. He goes, and, it, and it's a journey of some weeks um, by foot from Israel to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And we need to look back at a, for a second, just for some context, at Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, where, where we get that original command. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. 
Now, when, in, in that translation, and, it, and it's a fine one, we get the sense that the purpose, Jonah's purpose in being called to Nineveh is to confront them for their wickedness. But as happens in Hebrew sometimes, uh, there, there's some difficulty in translation. We could also translate it this way, which gives us a little bit different sense. Um, uh, uh, so, alternate translation. Go to the important city, Nineveh, and speak against it, for their trouble is of concern to me. Okay? So, there's a question. Is God's intention for Jonah to confront the wickedness of Nineveh? Uh, undoubtedly, right? The, the, obviously. But the second translation gives us a sense that maybe, maybe there's some calamity, there's some trouble, there's some struggle that Nineveh is already experiencing. That as Jonah goes, Jonah is going to clarify to them the struggle that they're already experiencing and give them sort of a, a final warning. This is what's about to go down. So not, they're, they're, not sort of, they're not contradictory, but they, they go together. Now, a Bible scholar named Doug Stewart um, argues that Jonah, that, if, that in terms of historical uh, reconstruction, and this is also always sort of tricky, right? We have little, little bits and pieces of historical information from, from the centuries. He argues that, that Jonah is coming to, uh, to a king called Asardan III, and from, like, from texts around that time, they're called omen texts. Sound, that's like horror movie sounding, right? Um, he says there's three, there are four things that tend to freak out the kings of Assyria. Four things tend to freak them out. One, invasion by enemies. That would freak anybody out, right? Um, solar eclipses. Um, famines, which often include epidemics, and floods. It was a, a, a riverside city, so flood. Flood's going to be a big deal. But these things were taken by the Assyrians to be signs that the gods were against them. Okay? Good to know. Now, from the historical record, we surmise that um, around this time, around this time that Jonah lived, given that he's preaching, to, uh, he's preaching during the reign of Jeroboam II, that Assyria had suffered losses to neighboring kingdoms, they had lost territory. There was a solar eclipse. There's potentially, and this is a little bit less certain, potentially an earthquake um, that caused famine and rebellion within the kingdom. So it seems like the, the land that Jonah is going to, powerful as it is, is on edge. They're troubled. So God has seemingly prepared the way, prepared the hearts. He's gone ahead of Jonah to prepare the hearts of the people of, of, uh, of Nineveh to receive his message. So he arrives in Nineveh, great city. Maybe uh, this is maybe an appropriate place to, to have this discussion, right? Here we are in D.C., sort of the D.C. of their world. And it describes it as a great city, uh, meaning both size and status, that required a three-day visit. And here again, we have something of a, uh, maybe a question. What does it mean by a three-day visit? The ESV puts in there, in breath, okay, could be. Um, it could be that, so if it's, if it's really three days, it takes him three days to go through it. What we see from Jonah is Jonah is going from street corner to street corner, plaza to plaza, market to market, proclaiming, uh, proclaiming this message. 40 days.
Well, I don't know about you, I, I remember I was in, I was in high school, um, September 11th, 2001. And I remember some days after, a group from my youth group went down, a, a group in Minneapolis, that at the time, our stadium was the Metrodome. That was where, that's where our football teams played, our, our baseball team played. The there was a prayer service at the Metrodome, largest venue in the city. I don't think there's been a prayer service like this since or before, right? Like, within a couple of days, the, the, the city had galvanized around this idea that we needed to gather and pray. It's not a thing that, if we, if we went down and tried to, tried to book like National Stadium to like year anniversary, right? Like it'd take more money than we could ever imagine and like it just never happened. But in the moment of crisis, the, the community galvanized around this idea that we need to pray. And so I think what we see here in Nineveh is we see a city and a people deeply disturbed by the events that they're experiencing. And suddenly this foreign guy shows up and like, wait a second, that makes sense. So, so the king, notice it says the king and his, eld, and his nobles hear about it, and they make a decree. Now, I don't know a lot about kings, but I know that a powerful king doesn't need his nobles, right? When you got like Tiglath-Pileser and Cyrus, they're, they're, not, they're not including nobles in their decree. They're just saying, look, I said it, I'm the king, this was going to happen. Was it, what was it, Charlton Heston, so let it be written, so let it be done? Is that, um, anyway. But notice he says, like, the king and his nobles. I I think that's maybe a subtle hint that this king is in trouble. This king's in trouble. He needs the support of the elites in his community to get things done because things aren't going well. So he says, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and, and let them call out mightily to God and let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent, uh, and, uh, may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now you might look at that and go, and the animals? The animals got to fast. They got to they wear sackcloth too. Um, it, it seems sort of silly, right? And yet, like we know from other historical uh, documents that this was a thing that, that was said in other contexts by the kings of Assyria. They included, and, and if you've grown up on a farm, you know like, the, like, like your animals are integral to the family, right? They're your source of food. They're your source of income. They, some of them become sort of part of the family. So I guess it's, it's sort of, it's not crazy, it's different. Um, maybe like we would say, like, hey, we're going to have a fast. We're not even going to drive our cars. Like, we're, gonna, we're just going maybe to, that, maybe that's sort of the sense. Now, we get like a really weird contrast again here between the king and Jonah. Because if there's revival happening in a place, right, who do you expect to take the lead? Well, the prophet. So you got prophet Jonah, he rolls in, he says, repent, like, or he doesn't even say repent, 40 days in Nineveh is going to be destroyed, and you would think as the, at the, as the prophet, he'd be excited. How many times do we show the gospel and like, anybody, anybody? Nope. No. Okay. Um, you know, and here, he's got the whole city listening to him, and what does he say? Nothing. 
disappears from the story. And so what we find is we find the king, this pagan king, and the people of Nineveh frantically working to repent, and we hear nothing from Jonah. We'd expect Jonah to take the lead in worship, but once again, he's silent. So the king, like the sailors, you remember the sailors from a couple, couple weeks ago? You know, they're on the boat, Jonah's asleep, and they're like frantically trying to like, you know, um, tread water, not tread water, bail water, that's the word. Um, they're throwing stuff overboard, trying to row back to shore, and Jonah's like, yeah, I'd just rather die. Yikes. So here, the king, the king's taking the lead. Now, he's a syncretist. He's probably a king who worships lots of gods. He's happy to welcome another one in. He may not even be entirely sure which god he seeks to repent to. He's undoubtedly superstitious, maybe sort of grasping for anything that can give him a political boost. But what's really strange is that in what he says, he he essentially quotes from Isaiah 59. We don't know whether it's intentional, if somehow he had heard Isaiah, or if this is just some gift of the Spirit. Um, but in his proclamation, he's, he's, he quotes Isaiah. And then later, Jer- uh, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 26 and 36, like, he uses this same formula. He says, like, turn from our evil way. Let's abandon the violence that's in our hand. Who knows? God may relent and turn from his fierce anger. Like, he's, he's quoting Scripture. So in Isaiah 59, it's going to be an interesting con- like connection In this illusion, Isaiah describes the clothing of the wicked as spider webs, which is just icky, right? (laughs) Imagine being clothed in just spider webs, like not much in terms of clothes at all. He says, their webs will will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover cover themselves with, with with what they make. Their works are iniquity, and their deeds are violence in their hands. So he says, if we embrace violence, if we embrace wickedness, we will essentially be like, 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 you know, like the king who has no clothes. Maybe we've achieved power, but it's all, it's all fraud. It's clothes that aren't clothes at all. So the Ninevites understood, and we ought to understand, hopefully we understand, that like, if like, the way that they've been living has clothed them in a clothing that isn't clothes at all, they ought to abandon, like metaphorically, they ought to abandon their actual clothes, their normal clothes, for clothing that's uncomfortable, unfashionable, and undignified. Repentance requires an outward expression of the inward reality. We need this reminder, don't we? The Egyptians know it well. Not the the Egyptians. The Assyrians know it well. They even make their livestock participate, which again, is funny. The king hopes that in turning from their wickedness and from their violence, God will forgive them and relent from the disaster that he's declared. Later, God uses these same words, the same formula in, through Jeremiah to proclaim like, the need for repentance to Judah, and Judah doesn't repent. Now, we know Nineveh's repentance is short-lived. It's short-lived. It's a couple of days. People don't convert. And it seems like, in part, because Jonah does nothing to lead them in conversion. 
He's entirely silent. Their repentance is for a couple of days, and yet it's enough for God to relent from this disaster. Even this limited repentance is pleasing to God. Seemingly more pleasing than Jonah's limited obedience, which is sort of startling. So there's a question for us in this, right? Like, what do we do when we see non-Christians doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly? What do we do? What's our attitude? Well, of course, right, we ought to point them to Jesus, who's the ultimate fulfillment of those ambitions. And yet, we have to rejoice with them when they do rightly. We have to praise God for His grace to them and through them, even if they don't believe and understand. But that's not Jonah's response, is it? It's not. Chapter 4, again, page 775. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said? This is what I said when I was yet in my country. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that uh, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And God said, Do you do well to be angry? Chapter 4, unfortunately, leaves us with no doubt about the state of Jonah's heart post fish exile. Nothing's changed. His heart remains hard against God and against the Ninevites. And upon seeing the Ninevites' repentance, or maybe, like, maybe this really comes at the end of him sitting there waiting 40 days, Jonah cries out in protest. And he says, like, he says, look, this is why I fled. This is why I didn't want to do this, God. He's bitter. He's, he's bitter that God is God. He's bitter that God is mer- gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now, here's the, here's the kicker. He loves it when God is that for him. He's angry that God is God for the Assyrians as well. Like, the, the sheer weight of the biblical truth and goodness that Jonah is outraged by seems absurd, doesn't it? Yeah, we're not exempt from this, are we? We're not exempt from this. Jonah is staring down a powerful enemy. And it's easier to assume that God is more for us than he is for our enemies. Yet, if we read Scripture carefully, all of it, we see that God's interests and concerns are far more complex, far less parochial than we would assume or prefer or even begin to understand. Think Job. But the author isn't done. The story's not over. Could have ended there, but it doesn't. 
God wants us to know. The author wants us to know exactly the state of Jonah's heart. And I think he wants to expose ours. He just wants to ask us the question. Jonah apparently waits outside of Nineveh for the requisite 40 days. He's hoping, I think, to to see Nineveh get torched. And during that time, we get this final story. uh, Jonah 4, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself. He sat under it in the shade uh, till he should see what would happen to the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And when the day dawned, uh, sorry, when the dawn came, the, uh, came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked God, and, and he asked that he might die, and said, "It is better for me to die than to live." But God said to Jonah, "Do you do well to be angry for the plant?" And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came, up, came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there is a more than 120,000 pe- persons whom do not know their right hand from their left hand and also much cattle? Okay, so let's get the picture. Jonah goes out of the city. He goes out of the city. He sets himself up outside the city where he's got a good view. And he builds himself a little lean-to. Now, if you've been in the Middle East, that desert, that desert heat, that Middle Eastern sun is hot. It is, it, it is hot. <laughs> if we, we get a chance as a church to go, go, uh, go to Israel, we'll hike, we'll, and you've got to have a hat. That, that heat is, is just intense. Um, and so, like, every little bit of shade helps, Right? Every little bit of shade helps. So, like, God appoints this vine, apparently has some big leaves or something, to grow up overnight. It's like, oh, a little bit of extra shade. God's still looking out for me. This is great. And the next day, God appoints a, uh, a worm, and it chews at the plant, and the plant dies. <laughs> and he's upset. He's angry. He's angry because he's uncomfortable. That God has made him uncomfortable. And God, God asks, are you right to be upset about the plant? And Jonah is emphatic. He's unrelenting in his insistence that he has the right to be upset about the plant. Uh, he's also, he, not, so not only now is he upset about Nineveh, and he's upset about the weather, because he's got that desert wind hitting him, um, and he's got that sun beating down, and he's upset that his plant's dead. I can be this petty. Can't we? Now, the translators here, um, they translate that last verse, verse 11, as a question. But I think it's actually a statement. Now, they're getting the sense right, but they're missing some of the sass. And that makes me sad. 
I don't know why. Something about God being sassy here is sort of comforting to me. I don't, I don't know what it is. Um, if, you know, maybe, maybe you've been there, right? You're like, you're like mom, dad's like, hey, go clean your room. My, my room doesn't need to be clean. And they're like, oh, your room doesn't need to be cleaned. Really? That's where God's going to go here. He says, he says basically, oh, Tony, you're upset. Let, let me get this straight. Let me get this straight. You have pity on the plant for which you did not labor. You didn't make it grow. Came up in a night and perished in a night. And I should not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there is more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Notice the author doesn't give us Jonah's response. Maybe it's obvious. But in part, he doesn't give us the response because his response doesn't matter. His response doesn't matter, does it? The author of the book of Jonah is challenging us. It's our heart. We're the ones who need to answer this question, who need to wrestle with this question. How many of us, when push comes to shove, we'd rather see the United States prosper and profit from the destruction of our enemies than we would see our enemies saved salvation at the cost of our profit and our prosperity. Now, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, know that I don't have, I don't have to make that decision most days, at least not, not at any grand level, right? And yet, like, <laughs> confession time, right? Like, how many times have you heard, like, oh, man, that chocolate, that's picked by slaves. That coffee's picked by slaves. Those shoes are made in a sweatshop. That clothing is made from a sweatshop. And I choose, and it's like, I don't, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Because that threatens my comfort. God, give me the vine. How many times do we avoid sharing the gospel? Because it's uncomfortable. Whether it be a friend or a coworker or whatever, there's not even any real threat to, like, to our relationships or to ourselves. It just makes us uncomfortable. Notice Jonah. He isn't being threatened by the Assyrians. If Jonah walks back into town, they would embrace him and like, want to hear from him. They're like, tell us more. What do we need to do? He doesn't. He just feels threatened. Is that really? He feels threatened in the midst of overwhelming evidence. Israel's greatest threat, and Jonah ought to know, he ought to know, their greatest threat to Israel, to his people, is his people's own idolatry, own injustice, own sexual morality. Yet he's obsessed with Assyria. He's outraged at God's grace towards Assyria, who God describes as not knowing their right hand from their left. Now, what's that saying? Well, I think it's, it's a way of saying, look, they're morally ignorant. God, time and time again throughout Torah will say, you follow me. Follow me in the paths of righteousness. Don't turn to the left or to the right. You, you follow me. And God's like, look, they don't even know. Like, they don't even know where the path is. They don't know where I am. They're just, like, they're spinning in circles. What? Imagine a people who doesn't know the difference between murder or health care. Who doesn't know the difference between boys and girls. 
who doesn't know what marriage means, who embraces violence and sexual, sexual morality as a means to power. Can we even imagine that? That's Nineveh. Jonah feels that God's grace to them threatens his people's status and his comfort. Look, saints, the reality is our status, our comfort, our nationalism is a significant hindrance to our work of the gospel in the four corners of the earth. In part, we have a whole lot more in common with Nineveh than we do with Jonah. We're not an oppressed nation or threatened. We live in a powerful nation, yet we have the same like concerns in our hearts, in our own sinfulness, in our fallenness. We have those desires for status, comfort, and nationalism, just like Jonah. We live in a time where, as a people, we don't know our right hand from our left. We have enormous power, and so how, as a church, do we respond? Far too many of us have chosen to embrace comfort and entertainment when Jesus is calling us to more. Right? So what does Jesus say? Jesus invokes Jonah. Matthew 12, um, it's page 817 in your Bible. We'll just be there for a second. We're starting verse 22. It says, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed, and they said, can this be the son of David? What they mean is, can this be the Messiah, the one that we've hoped for? And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man is able to cast out demons. Pause. Notice. Jesus is going about healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding the hungry, extending grace and mercy to the sinner and the outcast. He's proclaiming good news of the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees, who are the religious elite, the ones who ought to know better, say, no, 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 all this stuff is from demons. It's all from demons. And we'll skip down a little bit. Verse 33. Jesus says to them, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Remember, these are farmers, right? Like, there's no such thing as a good tree that doesn't produce good fruit. Sort of saying the obvious, like, you should know. Just look at my fruit. He says to them, you brood of vipers. Translate, you sons of Satan. How can you speak good when you do evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. And by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign. Did you catch that irony? But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks 
for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man uh, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, some, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So they've challenged his authority. They've challenged his authority. They've said, his authority is from demons. And then, like he responds, and a few minutes later, they're like, okay, well, if your authority is real, then show us a sign. I was like, wait a second. I just did a whole bunch of signs, and you said that's from demons. Now you want me to do it again? Um, excuse me, what? I don't know what kind of sign they're looking for. But I have a suspicion. Knowing their cultural context as in a people under oppression, as, in a, as a people under the rule of Rome, I think the sign they're looking for, and the sign that they would have accepted is if when they said, hey, give us a sign, Jesus said, okay, grab your sword, I'll grab mine, let's go attack that Roman garrison over there, we'll wipe them out. If one of you gets hit, don't worry, I'll heal you. Someone got a lunch, I'll feed you all. That's what they were looking for. That's the piece that, they, that, that was missing for them. That's what they wanted. They wanted to see their enemies destroyed. But he doesn't give them that sign. He doesn't give them that sign. His ministry looks nothing like that. Time and time again, Jesus heals the sick, shows grace to the sinner and the outcast, proclaims the gospel to the Gentiles. So he, like, so he says to them, the only sign he'll give them is the sign of Jonah, which is a tricky statement because he then proclaims his death and resurrection. He says, look, I'm going I'm to die and rise again. Jonah was in the fish for three days. I'm going to be in a tomb for three days. But that, doesn't, that didn't mean much to them in that moment. It means something to us in retrospect. It didn't mean much to them. So what did it mean to them? Well, think about the story of Jonah. Jonah declares as minimally as possible the word of God. God is going to destroy you. And the people repented. And Jesus is like, look, I'm giving you the message Jonah was supposed to give. I'm giving you the full gospel. I'm proclaiming the truth, and I'm showing it to you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the poor get good news preached to them. In me, Jesus says. And they're like, no, nah, we're not going to repent. It's like, you want a sign? Go back and read Jonah. I'm proclaiming the good news to... Uh, to uh, to the Gentile, to the sinner, to the wicked, and you're acting like Jonah, you ought to know better. To the point, Jesus says, look, the people of Sodom will rise up in the resurrection. They'll stand and say, you're condemned because you haven't repented. So what do we do? If we miss God's call for us to proclaim the king, his kingship to the nations for the sake of holding on to our nationalistic desires, 
If we flee, we'll be just like Jonah. But Jesus is what Jonah was always supposed to be. And he's calling us to follow him. He is the epitome, the embodiment of grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love uh, to both the Jews and the Greeks. And this is the king that we follow. Who in the heat... Bearing the weight of the cross after a sleepless night abandoned all comfort to embrace suffering, to make atonement and resurrection life available to all people. That's where our hope is. That's what our calling is. Remember, he says to him, and I don't think he's being metaphorical. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Since our comfort hinders us. Our hope is in a crucified and resurrected Messiah. We can't be like Jonah. We must hope in Jesus and proclaim him faithfully from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. So what right, given the king that we have, given our sovereign God, what right do we have to be angry? What right do we have to be afraid What right do we have to be worried or discontent or even relaxed? There is a broken, impoverished, and dying world in need of the gospel, resentful of our comforts, yet longing to be invited into the kingdom of heaven. Are we going to remain outside the city? Will we remain in the shade? Will we remain in our comfort? Or, as a community, will we take this challenge from Paul? Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever I had, I count as lost for the sake of Christ. Can we say that? Indeed, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, uh, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God uh, that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or am already perfect, but I press on to make, my, uh, to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward uh, to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to be with you in your resurrection. God, we cringe to know that that means participating with you in your suffering. But may we, by your grace and your spirit and the community in which you have placed us, seek 
to follow you faithfully, to seek to be yours and yours alone, abandoning what came before, counting as rubbish what we have, embracing you and you only, that we would press forward as individuals, as families, as a community towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of you, God, in our Messiah, Jesus. Father, may we be like Jesus. May we be strong and courageous not to let fear or relaxation or worry or discontent keep us from the, uh, your call to make disciples. Father, especially when it's uncomfortable. So God, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name.